now that having heard your word, we can look at it more closely. Please teach us, we pray. Shape us so that we love you more and serve you better. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Wednesday night, kids have Turkish food and learn about the country. You just heard Ajalon pray about some trip to Turkey that he and Bryson and Travis are about to take. It's uh, October 6 to 15. What's this about Turkey? Well, it's about God's providence, and it's also about his vision. It's providence? Yeah. Uh, you may remember that we had some workers here at Covenant a number of months ago who are serving in Turkey. And that led us to think about God's mission. Uh, we heard about it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 says, God is about the business now of bringing all things together, things in heaven and things in earth under Christ the head. Pull back the curtain in heaven, and what do you see? A vision of the completion of God's mission. Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. Revelation chapter nine, uh, 7, verse 9. There will be representatives from every ethnic group across the spectrum of history in heaven at the end of time. It's a wonderful, invigorating perspective. So, why would three guys from Covenant Church go to Turkey? I mean, don't we have enough to do here in the United States? We're trying to keep in step with God's providence and his vision. He connects us with people who are serving in that part of the world he has a vision that the ends of the earth hear of the salvation of the Lord, and Turkey is one of the most unreached countries in the whole around the globe. You say, really? Yeah. 85 million people? Maybe. 0.04%, you do the math, are followers of Jesus. Maybe. Very small percentage. Which is to say, today, Sunday morning, uh, there are thousands, perhaps millions of Turks who couldn't have a conversation with a Christian even if he wanted to. So that's kind of the background. Now, as Ajalon said, we're going to be working our way through the book of Acts, the Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. And what we find is this. Prior to Jesus ascending back to heaven after his death and resurrection, he left his church down here on earth with his mission. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. What's our need? Isn't it to more and more get on God's page with what he's doing? To align our choices with the things that are most important to him. So today's topic is the lifestyle difference Christ makes in his followers. The lifestyle 
difference that Christ makes in his followers. So we're looking at those first 11 verses from Acts 1 that Ajalon just read. If you can have that in front of you, I think it'll help as we move along and try to understand what the Lord tells us here. Now, these verses come to us in three parts, easy to see. Verses 1 to 5 is Luke's prologue. Verses 6 to 8 is a mandate to witness. And then verses 9 through 11 is a statement about Christ's ascension. And we're going to follow them just in that order. Um, so what's this about Luke's prologue? It's been termed a resumptive preface. What do we mean by that? Well, Luke is both the author of the Gospel of Luke that bears his name and the book of Acts. And there are lots of comparisons that we can make, parallels between the two books. Same author, roughly the same length, cover about the same period of time, have a similar plan and purpose. Now, if you look at verses 1 and 2, you'll see that this resumption is evident. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I began to tell you all about the things that Jesus did and said until the time that he was taken up into heaven. Theophilus, it's the name, means God lover. Uh, he's apparently a Gentile baby Christian. And so Luke is going to help him understand now in the book of Acts the things that Jesus continues to do now that he's been raised to new life and has ascended to the Father. And so right away, Luke identifies four topics that are important to him. They're right there in verse 2. Which are they? The ascension of the Lord, uh, the mandate to witness, the Holy Spirit present with God's people, and apostles. And what he says in, those, in that verse dovetails with what he had said at the end of Luke. Jesus says nearly the same thing. Luke chapter 24. Now, verse 3 turns the time back, turns the clock back for us to a time before our Lord's ascension. What was Jesus doing right after his resurrection? We're told. He presented himself alive, demonstrating many proofs. He showed himself to the disciples over a period of 40 days. You say, why 40 days? Why not 39? Why not 52? There's not a very good answer for that in the Bible. The best we can say is that in the Old Testament, the number 40 was attached to the normal reign of a king. Can't do any better than that. But Jesus also talked about the kingdom of God. What's that mean? Well, the kingdom of God is his, uni is his universal rule and reign, uh, his expression of sovereignty over all things. And that was on display in the life of Israel. And what Luke is saying is that that is, that is now on display in the church and through the lives of Christians. Now, again, there are parallels between what we just noted and the end of Luke. That is, at the end of Luke, Jesus talks about his Messiahship. 
uh, an understanding of the perspective, uh, an understanding of his death and resurrection uh, in relation to the Old Testament, and um, the disciples' responsibility to bear witness to him. So verses 4 and 5 then emphasize this relationship between Christ being alive and the coming. The disciples are to wait for the Spirit to empower them. Christian life is never to be viewed as you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, but it's rather living out of the resources that the Holy Spirit gives to those that trust in Christ. So what's the force of this prologue? Luke is rooting the Christian church in history, and he draws a straight line connecting the Old Testament with the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus, and his ascension. Why? In order to be faithful to the Lord, it is essential for the church to be rooted in a common life that's given to us in the scriptures. And so this moment is one for you to trust the Lord. Uh, as you do, you can live in hope. The Spirit of God Almighty is now in you, and He is advancing the gospel moment by moment in your life, more and more, and moment by moment all around the world. In other words, we have a place to turn. We have a place to stand. We can know the truth because it's given to us. That's Luke's emphasis here. I'm not saying something that's new. This is consistent with all the Old Testament taught. Thankfully, then, that grounds the church in history. Well, that's the prologue. What's next? This mandate to witness, and you'll see it in verses 6 through 8. G uh, Jews expected that God would come and somehow restore Israel's fortunes through the work of the Spirit. We don't know, but as the disciples hear Jesus talking about the Spirit, that may have prompted their thinking. And so they asked, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you now set things right for us politically? If so, please tell us. Now, Jesus doesn't shoot down the hope of a restored kingdom here. But he does say, you don't need to worry yourself with God's timeline. He is also saying, to be my disciple, revise your thinking about the future. Well, in what way? Verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, let's just notice for ourselves here, this comes as a direct commission from Jesus himself. It's significant because it's the last word that we have before his ascension. Therefore, it's final and conclusive. It lays an obligation on followers of Jesus. And we want to say it comes to us as a gift. You will receive. And it comes to us with a promise. You will be my witnesses. As I said, what Jesus inaugurates here is not something that is left to self-effort. The Spirit is the one who gives the power. Jesus is the one who gives the direction. And let's just say it to ourselves from another angle. This commission is about a person, it's about power, and it's about a program. The person, Jesus. It's on his authority that the church acts. He's the object of our witness. The power, well, it's from the Holy Spirit. His presence is absolutely essential to fulfill this mission. And the program begins in Jerusalem, moves through all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, even to a place like Turkey. And so the Christian church is a missionary church. It obeys the commission that Jesus has given, acts on his behalf to extend his ministry, proclaims the kingdom of God in its witness about Jesus, is guided and empowered by the same spirit that directed and supported the ministry of Jesus, and it follows a program whose guidelines for outreach have been set by Jesus himself. Now let's go back to the disciples' question. Will you now set things right for us politically? When I long to have my political views accepted by everybody else, Jesus says, to be my disciple, revise your thinking. Revise your thinking about the future. Give yourself to ultimate things. A life focused on maximizing your witness for me. And it's easy for us to get off track, isn't it? This comes to you by way of confession. Um, Barb was a local newspaper reporter. And she stopped by the church office one day. And she wanted to talk to me about a report she'd heard that our church was going to help resell a Laotian refugee family. And my initial reaction, mostly inward irritation. I'm thinking, I don't want to be bothered with this right now. 
And as she went through her questions, suddenly the light went on. And I thought something like this. The Lord has plunked somebody in your office who wants to talk to you about the compassion of the church in the name of Christ and you're too busy for her? I hope you get the irony. To be a witness that day meant me adjusting my thinking about my future. So how prepared would you be if the Lord plunked somebody in your life tomorrow or Wednesday or Friday? How prepared would you be to witness for Christ? So let me suggest a couple takeaways. Adjust your lifestyle so you can carry a portion of scripture with you that would be appropriate if somebody asked you, how could I know Jesus? You say, well, what would that look like? Let me make a couple suggestions. You could wear cargo pants. Uh, and these fit in cargo pant pockets. Uh, this is one thing you can do, is have something that you give a person if they were interested in the gospel. What else could you do? You can memorize a presentation of the gospel. Four spiritual laws, two ways to live, the Roman road, I don't care what it is, but memorize it and practice it so that you can give it to a person in a moment's notice. It's not that hard to do, but it does take some energy, it takes some thoughtfulness. And the point, you're anticipating that the Lord will position you to be the witness he has already called you to be. So get ready for it. So first Luke's prologue, and now this mandate to witness. What's next? Well, look at verses 9 to 11. It's Christ's ascension. Here we find our Lord's ascension and entrance into heaven and angels with a message for the disciples who are left behind. Now, we aren't told anything about this. We don't know the psychological uh, ramifications in the disciples' lives as they watch Jesus go up into heaven. We don't know about that. We don't even know where the ascension exactly occurred. But Luke seems to be saying that the missionary activity of the early church rested on two facts. First of all, Jesus' mandate that we've touched on, and secondly, his, leaving, his living in heaven and having promised that he would return. The mandate to witness is an essential part of God's work of salvation in the world. It is also a foretaste of the kingdom that's coming. Hope in what God is doing is an incentive to obey him. So verse 9. When he'd said these things as they were looking, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, we know a little bit about clouds, don't we? I mean, there was the one over the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And can you think of another cloud in the New Testament? 
How about on the Mount of Transfiguration? And now here's the third one. All of them, or at least the first two, you would think, would point to God's presence. And so here's Jesus. As he is returning to heaven, he's enveloped in a cloud. I think the visible manifestation of God's presence, of God's glory, and God's approval on his life. And the disciples are looking intently at this, we're told in verse 10. And soon there are a couple angels in white that show up. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Now, their message, I think, has at least two parts. The Jesus the disciples had known has now a heavenly existence. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you. He's, he has a heavenly existence right now. And secondly, this same Jesus will return in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Now, I hope you can see this is a mild rebuke. Don't be surprised that the risen Lord has been lifted up into God's presence. And don't keep looking idly into the sky awaiting his return. Remember what he said. Now that he's gone, you have work to do. So get going on your task. Now, as we have prayed this morning, we try as a church to work to be faithful witnesses. We give financial support to denominational efforts at home and abroad. And we send money to help keep Mariana at Victory Bible Camp in Alaska. And we support the work of French Creek Bible Conference and the Boardwalk Chapel. And coming up very soon, a trip to Turkey. Yeah, let me just say it to you. Uh, Travis and Bryson and Ajalon, this is not a vacation for them to go to Turkey these next uh, for 10 days. They're not going to be there primarily to sample baklava as they gaze over the Bosphorus. They're there as part of a vision trip to see if there's a strategic way in which we can help advance the gospel among people that have very little access to it right now. This week, Debbie and I received a uh, uh, prayer letter from friends that have been missionaries in Afghanistan. And they had this to say about a person named Sky. She is one of the coolest people we have ever met. And then they go on and say, she's from a small town in the Mountain West, has her master's in cello, from a university in Israel, waiting to be sent to the mission field, doesn't want to waste any of her time not serving Jesus, and so she's decided to serve in an 
underserved inner city school marked by violence and poverty. It's also the case that Skye loves Afghan women and she's angling toward ministry there. So her friends have said to her, look, Skye, you know, um, it's a difficult road ahead. But she is filled with hope. She's filled with patience. And they say she's exactly the kind of person that Afghans need. Well, what have we done? We've looked at Luke's prologue. We've looked at the mission mandate. And we've looked at the Lord's ascension. Christ has called his church and he is calling you to engage in being his witness in a lost world. And yeah, I'm not suggesting any of you quickly pack your bags and see if you can get a flight to go to Turkey with Ashland, Bryson, and Travis. I'm not suggesting that. But I am saying that it is possible to up your game a little bit. He has given you his spirit to empower you. So whatever your insecurities may be, Christ is sufficient to enable you to witness for him. Jesus is coming again. So how might you adjust your lifestyle to maximize your contribution to his cause? Lord, we ask you to bless your word to us. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to this global task to which we've been called. And Lord, quickly disabuse us of the notion that we can somehow accomplish anything for you out of our own resources. Turn us instead to trust in the work of your spirit and to rely on the promises of your word as we move into a world that, with, that is desperately needy. We pray these things.